You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. to the sixth annual Herb Ellison Memorial Lecture. I'm Scott Radness, the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. The Ellison Center works to train students and inform the public on the history, culture, and politics of the post-communist region. One of our priorities is to bridge the gap between academia and policy. We named this lecture after Professor Herb Ellison because he devoted his career to doing just that. He was a historian and an expert on Russian and Soviet history and politics who taught at the Jackson School for 34 years. He believed not only in teaching and research, but also public engagement. At times when the US threatened to turn inward, he encouraged his students to go out and study the world and especially to understand our adversary of those times, the Soviet Union. It seems long ago and yet kind of familiar. Today we haven't quite settled things with Russia and Russia hasn't quite settled things with us. In fact, Russia seems to be more involved in our lives and politics than any time in recent memory. Depending on who you ask, Russian meddling in the 2016 election was an act of war, or something countries have always done, or fake news. Whatever one's views, Russia is now a topic of national conversation. Yet in our current fixation on this issue, we've lost sight of the big picture that these two countries still have to coexist in the world. So it may help to have some perspective. Tonight's speaker, is going to provide some of that perspective. Matthew Rajansky is the director of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, DC. And by the way, Herb Ellison held the same position from 1983 to 1985. In that capacity, Matt, stat, Matt stands at the intersection of scholarship and policy. His expertise lies in US relations with the states of the former Soviet Union, especially Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Moldova. He has advised governments and intergovernmental organizations on conflict resolution and security in the Euro-Atlantic and Eurasian region. Previously, he was the deputy director of the Russian and Eurasia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And throughout his career, he has been involved in numerous initiatives in track to diplomacy. He is frequently interviewed on TV and radio, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Foreign Policy. And I believe today, actually, he has an appearance on CNN with Anderson Cooper. Tonight, he will look behind the headlines, real or fake, to discuss the state of US-Russia relations. And before I introduce him to come up here, I want to thank Phil Lyon and Marion Ferguson for helping to lay the groundwork for tonight's talk. So now please join me in welcoming Matt Rajansky. Uh, well, thanks very much, <coughs> Scott. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. Um, 
I, I want to, of course, uh, thank the center. I want to thank the university um, and the Ellison family uh, for turning out tonight. Uh, it, it's a particular privilege to be able to give this lecture because of the connection that Scott already mentioned, uh, which is uh, being able to serve uh, as director of the Kennan Institute following uh, in uh, Professor Ellison's footsteps. Um, Obviously, there are some differences between us besides the era in uh, which we lived. Um, I think uh, visiting Russia today and visiting the Soviet Union uh, in the early 1980s are, are two different experiences. Maybe not that different in some ways. Um, I am uh, not a PhD academic. Uh, my uh, background is in uh, history and then uh, I have a JD. Um, but of course I've been obsessed with uh, Russia and the region for my entire career. Um, but I think the biggest and most important difference may actually be, I just lost that, may actually be that uh, Professor Ellison got to live in the right Washington and uh, I'm stuck over there on the Potomac. Um, yeah, okay. thanks very much. Okay. I won't touch that. No, no, I just timed out. Okay. Um, so. What I do, aside from uh, another, another category of activity that uh, Scott and uh, Herb Ellison would have had empathy for, uh, which is uh, administering a program in a center, um, probably the most thankless task on earth, uh, is, of course, I am a Russia expert. Um, but <coughs> what does that term really mean, right? Uh, Scott put it earlier, for lack of a better term. Um, well, it's for lack of a great many things, uh, and I like to define uh, sort of being an expert uh, first in what it is that we experts cannot do. Um, so the, the first thing we can't do is we cannot read anybody's minds. And of course, that's the very first thing we're always asked to do, right? We're asked, what is Vladimir Putin thinking? What does he want? What did he eat for breakfast? I don't know. I don't know any of those things, and I don't pretend to, so don't ask. Um, the second thing we tend not to be very good at is uh, telling Russians what their interests are, right? So sitting down with our great insights and our knowledge of the world and sort of assessing uh, what it is uh, that the Russians ought to want and, and telling them that. Um, uh, famously, George W. Bush walked out of a meeting with Vladimir Putin sometime in the mid-2000s and said, you know, shaking his head, gosh, that man just doesn't know what his interests are. No, actually, you just don't understand what he thinks his interests are. Um, the third thing we're very bad at is the crystal ball, right? We, we really cannot predict the next crisis historically. Well, someone's always getting it right, but that's the thousand monkeys with typewriters writing Shakespeare theory of things. Um, most of the time, most of us are getting it wrong. So again, don't ask us to predict. And the famous uh, story for me, at least, was uh, 1990, my former boss and mentor, Jim Collins, was uh, just arriving to be the charge d'affaires, so the acting ambassador in the Soviet Union in Moscow, gets the highest level briefings, the highest security clearances that you can. And the prediction that he's given at that time is, sir, by the end of the coming year, that is 1991, uh, we expect that the Soviet government will have granted the Republic of Estonia limited autonomy. And of course, by the end of 1991, for any of us not paying attention, uh, the Soviet Union ceased to exist, right? So we're really bad at predictions. Um, what can we do? Uh, we can pay attention to how Russians define their interests, right? So what do they tell us about what they want and why? Pretty straightforward exercise. Um, amazingly few people actually do that. Uh, second, we can try to identify patterns, 
themes and trends in what Russia not only says, uh, but what it does. Uh, and then third, this is especially important in Washington where we tend to have very short memories of electoral cycles of two years or four years. Um, recall lessons from the past, mistakes we've made, and the insights that come out of those. All right, let me start with some fundamentals. Uh, how do I think about Russia myself? And how do Russians think about Russia? So, you know, politics would, would tend to cast us and the Russians as diametric opposites, uh, right? These are all just charming. I actually have these Cold War uniform, unicorns in my office. Um, but, you know, sort of caricatures, the yin and the yang, the opposites. But in actual fact, we're, we're more similar than many people uh, would acknowledge at first. First of all, we're, we're really unusual in that we're both, really, I think, only with Canada. Uh, continental nations. We're Atlantic and Pacific nations. Um, we have been shaped by the experience of what in this country was called manifest destiny, right? It, expansion into a seemingly endless western frontier, ultimately reaching the Pacific. Uh, and then, of course, in the Russian case was the endless expanse of Siberia, also expanding into this vastness in a sense of sort of almost mission, right? Manifest destiny being drawn to expand the Russian civilizational sphere. Um, and uh, by the way, a side note, uh, George Kennan the Elder, this is the man for whom the, the elder relative of George F. Kennan, for whom he actually insisted on naming the institution that both Herb Ellison and I uh, had the privilege of directing. Uh, he was the foremost American explorer of Siberia in the 19th century. So a nice little connection point between those two uh, features. And of course, we, we both have a narrative about ourselves that we have saved Western civilization and, and with it saved the world, sometimes, by the way, from itself. Um, you know, World War II, the anti-Hitler coalition, Napoleon, uh, you know, the cavalry riding in, World War I, etc. So we, we have these narratives about ourselves and we even have a kind of civilizational, ideological, even religious dimension to it, right? America, the shining city on the hill of John Winthrop, uh, and of course, Russia, the third Rome, the inheritor, the inheritor of Byzantium and the Holy Roman Empire uh, from, from Rome. Um, so there are these surprising ways maybe in which we're similar. Um, how do ordinary Russians think about the world and is that similar or different from the way that your cross-sectional American on the street in Seattle or in the, the other Washington would think about the world? Um, I tend to think it's differences not so much of content, uh, but of punctuation and emphasis. Now, of course, punctuation and emphasis matters, right? Um, so pay attention as I kind of go through this basic framework of how your ordinary Russian man in the street tends to think about life, uh, but pay attention in particular to the sequence and the emphasis here, because that's where you will find some difference. So three basic principles, number one, Russians really want to live decently. Jit dostoyna would be the would be the word. Um, stability, prosperity, kind of basic freedoms. By most of those measures, life in Russia today really is much better than at any time in Russian history. But much more importantly, it's better than the most recent memory, right? Which would be the 1990s, maybe the shortages of the late Soviet period, right? Life in Russia is basically fine in this living decently category. That said, of course, the country has a long way to go on modernization and development and a lot of quality of life issues for a lot of Russians. But for the bulk of Russian people, things are pretty good, and so Russians live decently. How many Americans care about living decently? I don't know. Uh, who was it who said it's the economy, stupid, right? James Carville, I think. You know, 
Americans tend to also value this, but the emphasis and the context certainly is different. Russians, not surprisingly, actually like being Russian. They want to be Russian. It means something to them. They're not just, you know, this sort of famous image, right, of a, uh, just an American waiting to get out. You know, if you could just unzip this terrible Russian exterior of the misery and the drudgery and the oppression, then you'd find this American yearning to breathe free. No, look, Russians want to be Russian, and they're proud of being Russian. They have an enormous great history. Their contributions to literature, art, music, science, uh, of course, politics and security, almost everything else um, are enormous. Now, is this identity necessarily exclusive of being European or being Western? No, but it has to be distinctive. And in this sense, Russians are most often offended by the tone Westerners seem to take towards them, which is not necessarily hostility as much as it is disregard, right? So the World War II victory narrative, this is about 20 to 30 million casualties that Russia suffers to make the world, ironically, safe for democracy, right? Um, we tend to tell that story starting with Pearl Harbor and ending with D-Day, uh, and the Russian version of that story is very different, and Russians tend to really resent uh, the, the, the kind of minimization of Russia's role. And the same goes for the present, right, when, when President Obama talks about Russia as uh, nothing but a regional power. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment. So Russians want to be Russian. They want to be proud of being Russian. And now this one is really going to blow your mind. Russians want to be free. Russians have a freedom agenda. No, really. Um, but they think about it differently. And this is where the, the emphasis, the sequence, is important. So if you think about the late Soviet period, what was it more than anything that caused ordinary Soviet citizens to want to end that system? It was a lack of freedom, right? They couldn't practice the religion that they chose. Remember the secret baptisms and the dissidents, the refuseniks, uh, Jews, uh, Pentecostal Christians, etc. Um, they couldn't speak freely. And I don't mean going out on the street with, with protest signs and trying to start a revolution. I mean, literally just they couldn't trust anyone. They couldn't have a private conversation and say what they really thought because someone might be an informer and they might end up in prison, right? And they weren't free to travel even with their own country, let alone to exotic destinations like this, by the way, is Turkey, where there is a sort of Kremlin-themed hotel for Russian tourists. Russians go everywhere in the world now, and if you haven't noticed them traveling, you haven't been paying attention, right? So by these measures, of course, Russians have many of the freedoms today that they didn't enjoy in Soviet times, even though there are some freedoms that they really don't have, right? Um, you know, wear a, a Ukraine-themed scarf in Moscow and see what happens to you. No, but uh, basically, you, you are not free, obviously, to engage in significant political speech. Um, this, though, and again, this is where sequence and emphasis is important, this, though, has not historically been, for Russians, the number one measure for them, not for us, right? When we send Freedom House or, uh, or Human Rights First or whatever it is over to Russia to measure whether the country is free, or to any country, we tend to do mostly political measurement, right? But when Russians think about whether I enjoy freedom, they're measuring it against a very different benchmark, right? So this emphasis, this context point. And by the way, as a side note, I think that social media is really potentially changing the boundary between these two issues. Because if you think about social media, you, you tweet something or you post something or whatever for a, a group of your friends. So maybe you think a couple dozen people are seeing this, that it quickly becomes a meme and it takes on a kind of viral life of its own. And you might actually find yourself uh, as someone, uh, a journalist in Ukraine did, 
organizing the next big social revolution unintentionally in the first place. Um, so I think that the boundaries between private speech and, and public political speech may now be challenged. All right, so much for the ordinary man in the street. What about the Russian political elite? How do they see the world and how is it different? There's your tagline, the world's a scary place. How to understand this, why? Well, first of all, who are these people? Think about them generationally, right? The generation in power in Russia today, broadly speaking, broadly speaking, is between about the age of 50 and 70. Subtract 20 to 30 years from that age. Where were they in 1989 to 91? They were in what should have been this part of their lives and careers, the part where they have invested in education and apprenticeships and they're just getting started. Maybe they've just been commissioned as an officer in the military or they're a sort of young scientist. Uh, or they're a, uh, a, a budding diplomat, they're part of the economic elite of the Soviet Union, whatever it is, right? They are part of a privileged class. They are uh, ready to go, they're ready to serve their country, and in exchange for that, they are ready to receive the benefits of being part of that class, which means access to quality food, education, housing, medicine and health care. And what happens? Overnight, all of these things disappear. So it's not just the abstract fact that the Soviet system collapses and with it these people lose status. No, that's just theoretical. They lose money, they lose health care, they lose their house or their weekend cottage or their car and driver. It's all gone. And so for these people who now 25, 30 years later are by and large a part of the Putin era elite at the height of their power, they remember a time when everything predictable and important and indeed central to their survival disappears like that overnight. How does that shape your perception of the world? Right? How does that shape what you think might be possible? In addition, how did they perceive the Western response? What did we Americans, what did Europe do in response to that big change in the Soviet Union? Of course, we didn't want Russians to suffer. That was never our goal. In fact, we came to the rescue and provided a lot of support. But as for those Soviet elites, the party elites, the nomenclatura, did we have a lot of empathy for those folks? Not really. Should we have? It's a debatable point. But regardless, the way that these people remember it is schadenfreude. Americans were perfectly happy to see this elite displaced by what they generally viewed as a sort of profligate, criminal, amoral elite of the wild 1990s Yeltsin era. And these people preserve that view today, not very friendly towards the United States. Number two, shaping worldview. Everything you can do in almost any political system depends on what you can spend. And what you can spend is generally called your budget. Well, your state budget in Russia is almost one-to-one -one dependent on the price of commodities on the international market. And what is the one thing that we can say with certainty about the price of commodities? It will fluctuate. Generally speaking, we can't predict how and when it will fluctuate. So what does that mean? That means every penny or ruble that you can spend, whether it's on a tank or on health care, depends on something that is inherently unpredictable. All right, so we've got a world in which bad things, really bad things, happen suddenly and unpredictably. And then we have a current ability to pay for stuff that we need which is also unpredictable. You're starting to get a sense of how the world looks to these folks. The third key piece of it. What has Vladimir Putin built in the last 20 years that has, in effect, restored the Russian system to the level of power and prestige that he wanted to have? It's called a power vertical. 
he has taken what used to be a relatively, used to be at least for a short period of time, a relatively more pluralistic system, a system where you had some private businesses, you had civic groups, you had religious groups, you had a relatively free press, and he's consolidated all of it under the power vertical of the state. Now that has enabled him to restore Russia's power, prestige, unity, and his own control, but it has done so at the cost of resiliency. What we would think of as portfolio theory, right? It's portfolio theory in action. When you have something like a Hurricane Katrina that overwhelms the ability of the government to respond, well, guess what? You have multiple pluralistic sources of resiliency. You have church groups that are volunteering. You have the Red Cross that comes in, good volunteers from all around America. You have companies that make big donations. Look, in the Russian system, it's all the same company. It's all the same church, and they all report to the same guy. And so what this means is, if there are the beginnings of fissures in that system, if anything begins to threaten that one power vertical, the whole thing can come tumbling down. Not just this one political party, right, or this one piece of the system, the entire system life as we know it. So you put all of these factors together, and you start to see that the way these people understand the world is really different than the way that we do or our political leaders. So when we say to them, hey, you lost the election, right, or you stole the election, why don't you just leave the political scene and let someone else come in? It doesn't mean the same thing to them. It doesn't mean retire comfortably, get a university presidency, write a book, you know, enjoy your life in your house by the seashore, right? It means you're about to be pushed out, you're going to lose everything, the world is a dark and a scary place. It's a very, very different way of seeing the world. So how do they then think about their foreign policy interests? Well, look, they're pragmatic. They like to make deals with the United States and Europe, but they're not willing to make sacrifices of what they view as their independent position to do it. They understand that they're no longer the senior partner to China, right? They are no longer the big brother. In fact, if anything, as you see from this photo, they are prepared to genuflect just a little bit. Um, and at the same time, they're not prepared to accept Chinese empire either. So what Russia does is it carves out for itself a kind of middleman position, a position of a, a necessary but not sufficient broker in solving the important or addressing the important international challenges of the day. So think, you know, the Iran nuclear deal, not possible without Russia, solving Syria, not possible without Russia, resolving Ukraine, not possible without Russia. That last one, by the way, uh, a friend of mine very uh, wisely described as the, the old bringing a goat to the conference problem. You bring the goat to the conference and then the conference becomes about how to get the goat out of the conference. Uh, <laughs> the Russians are very good with that one, but, but, but it is still objectively true. Without Russia, we are not going to be able to solve these problems. And of course, the Russians tend to think of themselves as being rational in their foreign policy and accuse the United States in particular of being somehow irrational, hypocritical, overly political. So on human rights, for instance, you know, they'll point out, we were absolutely obsessed a few years ago with this, this uh, punk rock group, remember Pussy Riot? And what they actually did was, was not so great, right? It was quite vulgar and they did it on the, the holy altar of the biggest cathedral in the center of Moscow. And they got you know, two of their number, there were, there were more than just those four, got two years in prison as a result and they were not really treated all that badly. So it's, it's, it's a bad case, it's a human rights violation, but you know, if you compare it to some of the stuff that's going on in, in countries that are allies of ours, Saudi Arabia, for example, 
you know, the Russians would argue, why are you so obsessed with human rights in our country when there's all this bad stuff going on around the world? Clearly, you have an agenda. Uh, why is the West obsessed with Iran's nuclear program, right? Pakistan went nuclear in 1997. You know, you kind of said, oh, gee, that's a shame. Tiss, tiss, Pakistan. And then you went on to launch like 15 years of super close cooperation with the Pakistani intelligence services who are in bed with, uh, with fundamentalist uh, groups. So the Russians see hypocrisy there. Uh, or why, for example, is Russian nationalism the most terrifying thing in the world? Oh my God, Russian nationalism, when we have NATO allies who parade people in, uh, in Nazi, uh, you know, in, in SS recreation uniforms as heroes, uh, on their streets regularly in annual in annual National Patriotic Day. So you know the Russians look uh, right or wrong. The Russians have some uh, you know I would say criticisms of the the American uh, of American foreign policy that we need to try to understand in order to understand where they're coming from. Why even bother with all this, right? They're, so they're so different. They see the world so differently. Their elites completely on a different planet than ours, and they think our policy is nuts. Why do we bother with them? Well, okay. Answer number one, this is the only country that can destroy life as we know it in the United States if it chooses to do so in under an hour. Sorry, it's reality. We have to take that seriously. Um, it also means, as Ronald Reagan said, uh, a nuclear war cannot be won, therefore it should not be fought. Right? That, that is just one of the most fundamental truths I believe ever stated about nuclear war. There are some people in the government right now who disagree with me. Um, you know, who think that there is such a thing as a limited, containable nuclear war. I don't personally believe that. But even if there were, you got to take Russia seriously. It is the world's largest or second largest nuclear power. It's the second largest supplier of conventional weapons to the world after the United States. Uh, it has a swing vote on the UN Security Council, which makes any kind of sanctions or any Security Council action depend on Russia. And by the way, if we think international law matters, even if we think Russia is a rule breaker, then we still have to take Russia seriously because it is an important part of the international legal system, its veto in the UN Security Council being an example. Um, I've mentioned resolving regional conflicts like Ukraine, but even the Israel-Arab conflict, Russia's part of the quartet, the North Korea conflict, Russia's part of the six-party talks, um, 21st century challenges like disaster relief, cybercrime, trafficking. Look, Russia has the ambition to be a global actor. And so relative to a country like, say, Brazil, right, which has got more population, you know, its economy is almost as big now, but it has nothing like the ambition to have global reach that Russia has, right? Brazil can't really help us with a public health challenge in East Asia. But Russia can. They have teams of doctors that they can send out. Why? Because they want to, right? This is a very important factor when it comes to Russia. Um, and of course, it's big, right? Sheer size does matter in this case. It borders on Central Asia and East Asia. I remember, you know, I mentioned before when Obama uh, dismissed Russia as merely a regional power, the response of uh, the man who later became famous, uh, Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, he quipped, yes, well, w we agree that Russia is a regional power, but let's define the region. It's from the Arctic to the Middle East and from the Sea of Japan to the Baltic. So, yeah, if you define Russia's region that way, it's half the planet. Um, and then, of course, Russia's environment, right? Uh, you know, forests, fresh water, uh, Lake Baikal has 20% of the world's unfrozen fresh water just in that one lake, which is of course in Russia. Um, you know, everybody knows now Russia is an energy superpower, but what that means in practical terms is, yeah, 
we can build LNG terminals in Europe and we can start supplying, you know, exporting American natural resources to Europe and try to change up the energy balance. Energy is a commodity. It's fungible, right? The infrastructure is hard to build, but once you've got some basic infrastructure in place, it's just a question of price, right? We can try to change the calculus, but at some point Russia's got resources to use. And so right now Europe is heavily dependent on those resources. If we try to push Russian uh, energy out of Europe, it's just going to end up in East Asia, right? Or in, or in you know, other parts of the world, and, and, and those countries will also be dependent on those energy resources. Um, obviously, Russia is a very significant player in the Arctic, which may increasingly be important as a transit region, but certainly has environmental and security and energy concerns. And of course, Russia is a very big market. Uh, 145 million consumers, 10th or 12th largest economy in the world, depending on how you measure, and they like to buy American stuff. Uh, Ford was the most popular foreign car brand in Russia for three years running, basically between 2009-10 and the beginning of the post-Ukraine sanctions crisis uh, period. Uh, Boeing has done literally tens of billions of dollars of aircraft sales. Uh, same thing for PepsiCo uh, in terms of drink sales. And then obviously American energy companies have done tremendous business in Russia. So what's going on in the U.S.-Russia relationship? Are we, are we on a path to a new Cold War with Russia? Um, I'd like to answer this question by letting you decide. But let me tell you the ways in which I think it might be true and the ways in which it's definitely not true. So what's similar between today and the Cold War is really high levels of propaganda and demonization of the other side, what I call boogeymanism on both sides. The narrative is that the other side is solely at fault, right? I mean, ask yourself honestly, how many times do you hear prominent Americans saying, well, we screwed up this thing and that's kind of why we're in this mess with Russia? No, it's always, Look at all the terrible stuff the Russians have done. That's why we're in a conflict, right? But here's the thing. The Russians say the exact same thing, just the inverse. Look at all the terrible things America has done. That's why we're in a conflict. And it's very satisfying. It's always very satisfying to hear someone recite all the things that you think are right. Uh, this is why we cocoon ourselves in our social media bubbles and we only watch the TV networks that we already agree with. But actually, that's not very productive from the standpoint of international relations or any human relations. But that's where we are between Russia and the United States. Um, we have extremely low levels of expectations of one another. We think there's no value, really, in cooperation. Uh, when was the last time, other than President Trump's, ca Trump's campaign, where you heard a serious American talk about uh, or a prominent American talk about uh, cooperation with Russia and what that might lead to. Instead, we very happily throw Russia out of international institutions on the theory that we don't need Russia in those international institutions. Um, and then, of course, the Russians respond, right? So we have sanctions and counter sanctions. Uh, we created institutions like the Bilateral Presidential uh, Commission, which was supposed to talk about all these wonderful things from health and environment and innovation science and technology to security issues, et cetera, and then we shut it down because we had a conflict with Russia. We disagreed, so why should we talk to people we disagree with, right? Um, that, unfortunately, is also very reminiscent of the Cold War. And then, of course, proxy conflicts, right? Remember in the Cold War, right? You know, Vietnam, Afghanistan, all these conflicts in Latin America. Well, guess what? They're back, right? We've got a proxy conflict in Ukraine. We are supporting one side. The Russians are supporting the other side. And proxy conflicts in Georgia and the separatist territories there, proxy conflict in Syria, right, the Assad regime versus the so-called moderate rebels. Um, and we're fighting Russia for influence 
in a much wider swath of countries, places like Belarus and Kazakhstan in the former Soviet space, but also Greece, Hungary, Venezuela, even France and Germany, when you talk about kind of the election meddling and things like that, there is a battle for influence going on via proxies. Um, and then there's this stuff, near miss incidents, right? This is so reminiscent of the Cold War, it's terrifying, right? The potential for unintended escalation, that we could end up in a conflict because something happens even though we don't mean for it to happen. This is a screen grab from, taken from inside the aircraft of the Russian Minister of Defense, who is viewed by many as a potential successor to Vladimir Putin, so a really important guy in the Russian system, and that is a uh, Polish F-16 flying just off the wing, trying to sort of intimidate him and show, hey, we're watching you, and that is a heavily armed Sukhoi intercepting the Polish aircraft, saying, uh-uh-uh, stay away from the Minister of Defense. This kind of elaborate mid-air ballet with multi-ton heavy metal and explosives is not generally a good idea if you're trying to avoid an unintended escalation. We do this stuff all the time. Okay, those are the similarities. What's different? Well, number one, we are really coming out of an unprecedented period of Russia's connectivity to the wider world and especially the West. The last 25 years, Russia's been basically open to the wider world. That's unprecedented. If you think about the beginning of the Cold War, it was Stalin's Soviet Union, right? An absolutely closed door, an iron curtain. And we haven't had that, and that makes a difference. Um, Post-Soviet Russia has been much freer than the Soviet Union, despite real limitations. And in fact, um, Vladimir Putin has a, a real important insight here, which is, unlike the Soviet leadership, he does not try to keep people he disagrees with in the country. He says, leave the country get out and good riddance. You can't necessarily take your stuff with you or your money, but get out. Um, some of them end badly, like Boris Berezovsky, who ironically is an oligarch who helped get Vladimir Putin into power and then wound up dead. They claimed he hung himself in his mansion uh, in the UK. Um, but in general, the, the post-Cold War generation of Russians is much, much more connected uh, to the wider world. Uh, moreover, uh, there's really very little of a global ideological struggle in the current U.S.-Russia conflict. So unlike the Cold War, where the Russians are promising a communist utopia and a glorious bright future, and the United States is countering with free market, democracy, and capitalism, honestly, we're sort of both out of that game these days. When was the last time that you heard Americans proselytizing around the world for, you know, adopt our system? It's so great. It works so well. Um, right. I mean, even we chuckle at that. We're not really in that business anymore, in part because the Russians are not in that business anymore. They're not out there proselytizing for communism. We all kind of agree the free market's pretty good. We just disagree about how to implement it. And, and similarly for, uh, you know, Russians hold elections. They're not free and fair, but there are elections, right? Um, you know, and, and, and Russians love to point out our democracy also had its growing pains. They've only been a democracy for 25 years. This is the Trail of Tears, by the way. You know, where was American democracy? 25 years after the Revolutionary War or the Constitution, um, not necessarily in a great place. So the biggest single difference between today and the Cold War is something with an ironic twist, and that is that there is a massive power imbalance today between the United States and the West on the one hand and Russia on the other hand relative to the Cold War. So in terms of military spending, right, it's not even a contest. It's not even close, right? In the Cold War, if anything, the Russians, the Soviet Union, actually was dominant in Europe. 
right? They had an overwhelmingly larger military than we did, and it would have taken months for us to mobilize enough reserves to get over to Europe and to actually be able to face the Soviet forces. Um, not the case today. Economically, in 1980, Soviet GDP was something like one to two trillion dollars, sort of uh, hard to count. US GDP was maybe two and a half, three, right? So pretty comparable. Today, Russian GDP is almost the same. It's one to two trillion dollars, depending on how you count. US GDP is 20 trillion dollars, depending on how the stock market did this week. I didn't pay attention to that. Um, and so the result of this, right, the result of this massive power imbalance is we're not really that scared of Russia. We don't wake up in the morning thinking about the potential for a war between Russia and the United States in the way that we thought about conflict during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. You don't wake up in the morning asking yourself the question, is today going to be the day, right? You don't do duck and cover drills anymore. Why does it matter? It matters that it isn't the Cold War anymore in this sense because we now lack rational fear. We lack what concentrated the mind after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 or after any of those points where we walked ourselves close to the edge but didn't go over and we said, what can we do so that this doesn't happen again and this doesn't get worse? We stopped asking those questions and we stopped responding in that way. What do we do instead? Well, I think we've sought good conversations instead of hard conversations. And that's a mistake. And you can go through the periods historically here. I call the Bill and Boris show, Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin yucking it up, right? There's a famous moment here, the perfect example. Uh, our then Secretary of State, uh, Warren Christopher, and uh, top Russia advisor in the State Department, Strobe Talbot, go to visit Boris Yeltsin in the mid-1990s uh, at his retreat north of Moscow. And they sit down with him, and they have a good conversation. Everybody's very happy. And he asks, so gentlemen, Boris Yeltsin asks, what is happening with this NATO enlargement business? Are you going to enlarge NATO or not? And they said, well, what we're going to do instead is we're going to do a partnership for peace, and everybody's going to be invited, including all the former communist countries and Russia too. And then they sort of mumble on their way out, and, and we're going to expand NATO as well at the same time. Bye. OK. And, and so we avoided the difficult conversation for which we're now paying the piper. Right? Russia's single biggest complaint about European security for the last 20 years has been, what the heck are you guys doing enlarging NATO? We disbanded the Warsaw Pact. NATO has only one purpose, which is to deter Russia. We're here. We're not threatening you. Why are you doing this? And there you go. This is where NATO is today. Uh, you know, obviously, the cycles go on and on. The story of Ukraine, this tragic, horrible story where a country that in so many ways is so promising, right? You drop a stick into the ground in this country, the sort of mythology is, and it grows into a tree. It's so fertile, the breadbasket of Europe. And what has happened over and over is Ukraine tries to move in the direction of the West. The Russians get freaked out that that means NATO is going to move into Ukraine. And instead of talking through that difficult issue, right, it explodes into violence in Ukraine. And it's happened again and again. We sent Ambassador Mike McFall to Russia, the big expert academic on Russia, right, studied Russia his whole life, spoke Russian. And what happens? He gets hounded by the Russian media uh, and marched out of the country more or less on a rail. Sergei Magnitsky, the lawyer for an American venture capitalist in Russia, dies in Russian custody. Uh, and instead of talking about what we can do to protect the rights of both Russian and American citizens, we impose sanctions on Russia. The Russians impose counter sanctions on us. And now most of our officials can't travel to Russia, and most of their officials can't travel to the United States. 
Remember this guy, Edward Snowden, shows up in Russia. This was the beginning of election hacking, my friends. This is the beginning of that story. This is all about cyber war and conflict. And instead of having the hard conversation about how we're going to manage this, how we're going to deter each other, what is permissible, what is not permissible, and what the consequences will be, uh, instead, we let this issue fester. And then, of course, Ukraine, I mentioned the mess. So uh, why does all of this matter? Because like it or not, the rules for global security and whether the world is, in fact, secure and stable or not are generally decided in Europe. It may be that in another 50 years, it will be China, it will be Brazil, it will be India, it will be others. The fact is today, when there is order in Europe, when the rules that we built in Europe actually hold, this is the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, created in 1990, headquartered in the former Imperial Palace in Vienna. When the rules work, we enjoy peace and prosperity in Europe, and that tends to filter out in the wider world. When they don't, we don't. And I would argue that what we are seeing today, the breakdown that began with the Russian-Georgian conflict in 2008, continued with the Russian-Ukrainian conflict in 2013 and 14, and now is a Europe that seems to be riven by conflict, even, even Syria trickling both down and up because of the refugee issues. I mean, how familiar are these pictures? But of course, these are from 70 years ago. Let me, let me conclude on this. What we can do about Russia is not necessarily to flip a switch and solve a problem. We have to know something, first of all. And this goes back to Kennan. <clears throat> Kennan argued that even if your policy was containment, like in the Cold War, right, a firm containment designed to hold back Soviet expansionism, you can't do containment effectively if you don't know your adversary. And this is where we're making a huge mistake today. Scott knows these figures very well, tragically. We have been cutting U.S. intellectual infrastructure for understanding Russia left and right. There was a time when this was referred to as a peace dividend, right? Hey, there's no more Cold War, so we don't need to understand Russia anymore. I think you'd have to be living in a cave to think that there is no reason to pay close attention to Russia now. You can see the collapse in funding, federal support for Title VI, by the way, which supports this center here at the University of Washington, um, open world exchanges. Title VIII, which was actually zeroed out in 2013. By the way, 2013, the year the Ukraine crisis broke out, the United States government, in its infinite wisdom, canceled support for expertise on this region. And the second thing we can do is we can build foundations in the relationship. So our ability to exert leverage on the relationship depends on actually having a place to exert that leverage. So as Archimedes said, right, uh, give me a long enough lever and a place to stand and I can move the universe, right? But you can't if you don't have a place to stand. And the way that sanctions have worked for us for the last several years should be very illuminating. The trade relationship between Russia and the United States when we started with sanctions was about $45 billion. Trade relationship today is actually, it's long past that, it's well under $20 billion. So as time goes on, we increasingly have less and less basis to implement the power of sanctions because we have no economic relationship. We no longer have that leverage. Same thing. Fewer and fewer and fewer visas are being granted. Again, if you want to tell the blame game narrative, well, the Russians have kicked out 300 plus US embassy employees from Russia. So of course, we're able to give out fewer visas. And the Russians will say, well, everything's tit for tat. So we're going to give fewer visas in exchange. Well, what's the net result of this? Americans aren't going to Russia. Russians aren't going to America. 
right? No foundation to the relationship. And we tend not to be very clear or transparent with the Russians about how our politics work. So, so I show this picture because, uh, you know, if you know anything about these two gentlemen, you know they tend not to agree on a lot of things. If you ask the Russians, they would say, these people are both mouthpieces for the White House, right? They genuinely don't understand our politics and our system. And so they assume if John McCain, you know, during the Obama era, traveled to Europe and said something nasty about Russia, he must be saying so because the president let him do it. This is called mirror imaging. Because it would be true in the case of Vladimir Putin and some Russian senator. Well, let me end on this. Uh, George Kennan suggested in two out of the five recommendations in the so-called Long Telegram, the famous document that defined the strategy for the Cold War, that the key was to solve problems, right? The key was not to more accurately describe the nature of the Russian threat, to sort of debate about the details of the danger lurking in the darkness. It was to create more light. And so to the extent that Americans are not effectively solving problems today, that is actually our biggest vulnerability in any conflict with Russia. And that's where we find ourselves. So let me read you a quote from George Kennan, and you think about whether this applies to what we're experiencing today. The degree to which the United States can create among the peoples of the world generally the impression of a country that knows what it wants, that's coping successfully with the problems of its internal life and the responsibilities of a world power, and that has a spiritual vitality capable of holding its own among the major ideological currents of the time. That, surely, was a never a fairer test of national quality than this. In light of these circumstances, the thoughtful observer of Russian-American relations will find no cause for complaint in the Kremlin's challenge to American society. I'll leave it there. Take questions, yeah. Yeah, please. Uh, there's a premise to my question. Good. Um, that I don't know if you agree with, but my premise is that the media uh, coverage currently and has been for some time part of what has fostered the antipathy on the part of at least average Americans toward Russia. If you agree with that premise, what can be done? Yeah, so, I mean, I agree with the premise. Uh, I, I don't think there is a solution for the media uh, that's, you know, like a cure for the common cold or something like that. The, the media is, uh, especially in a, in a relatively free society like ours, the media is a reflection of demand. You know, uh, we want to live in kind of opinion reinforcing bubbles, and so we get partisan media. You know, we want to uh, engage in these sort of echo chamber uh, social media, you know, posting frenzies, and so we get Facebook. Um, I, I think if we had a strong desire, a curiosity about, you know, the factual basis for solving the big public policy challenges that matter to us today, um, you know, a lot more people maybe would be listening to NPR. Uh, it's not to say NPR is perfect, but, you know, it, it, demand, I think, drives the behavior of the media more than anything. And so what narrative is appealing to people? What narrative do people demand right now? It's a sad reality, but I think we have to acknowledge the reality is it is easier for Americans to say what went wrong, if something went wrong in 2016, was that the Russians did something to us than that there is something, what is it? There's something rotten in Denmark, right? 
that we have some serious problems that we're not doing well at addressing. And I think that media that force us to address, I mean, it's hard to, to put that much responsibility on the press, but media that force us to acknowledge and understand those things are very valuable, but they tend to suffer from relatively limited demand. And media that sort of spoon feed, you know, relatively shallow entertainment type content, including kind of the thriller spy story of Vladimir Putin, which, I mean, honestly, how often do we get that? Did anybody see the two-hour PBS special called Putin's Revenge? It's, it's, a, it's an absurd piece. It, it includes interviews with a lot of really great people who are friends of mine. But the, the message of the piece is absurd, that Vladimir Putin has been building his revenge against America for years and years since his, the 1980s when he was serving East Germany. This is nuts. Right? I tried to explain to you that the worldview of, of, of their experience is important. But, you know, the media is doing us a disservice when they sell us this type of entertainment. Yeah, well, and my point was that, as a former journalist, yeah. um, <clears throat> that the me what, whether we can do anything about the media, and we're, I'm talking about mainstream media, yeah, yeah. Uh, whether we can do anything about it or not, the fact is that I think the media is um, helping to form attitudes. It is. I just don't know. As a matter of public policy, you know, what do we do? We can't regulate a better media into right. existence. Right. I think if there's a demand, you know, it'll, it'll be there. And I, I think you inculcate demand by recognizing that you have to solve problems. And then you need information. And I don't know why we were talking uh, tonight at dinner about this problem of complacency. If you're rich enough, powerful enough, and safe enough for long enough, you stop caring. And, and I think Americans have become pretty complacent about a lot of things. Like we, we didn't care, you know, take a totally unrelated example. We didn't care about infrastructure for a really long time. And you know, now our bridges are rusting out from under us. So I think at some point, obviously, we'll have to pay the piper. And, and what I hope is that when it comes to the US-Russia relationship, which as I, I tried to point out, has these really apocalyptic potential dangers associated with it, that the point at which we figure that out and kind of get serious again won't be after we crossed the red line, right? And it's, and it's October 1962 when we're about to go to nuclear war. I think, I hope we blink before we get there. Yes? Yeah. There was a story on national news this evening um, where a number of congressmen were criticizing Trump for not, for not uh, activating some uh, sanctions that had been passed right. by the right. Congress. Is it, um, would you say a little bit about the role of current hyperpartisanship mm. on American policy towards Russia? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so the, the sanctions issue that they're referring to is, of course, Congress legislated sanctions half a year ago um, and, and then obligated the administration to do certain things, which the administration has kind of taken a, a box-checking approach to, right? They haven't really, you know, in a fulsome way, implemented that legislation. Um, there's bipartisan frustration with the administration on this point. Democrats and Republicans want the administration to be more active. In part, that's because, of course, you know, there are few bipartisan issues on Capitol Hill, but you know, hating Vladimir Putin is definitely one of them. Uh, that's that's an easy win. Um, I think uh, you know the dynamics of sanctions here are pretty straightforward. Uh, you can't fire any weapon without paying some cost. And uh, the administration doesn't agree with the Congress about how much cost it's worth to use this weapon. 
And there are a lot of reasons they may not agree. I think one rational reason to, to be somewhat skeptical about sanctions is that they haven't changed Russia's behavior so far. That is a rational reason. Uh, an irrational reason or, a, or an irresponsible reason would be that, well, if we were to threaten Russia with more sanctions now, uh, it would somehow undermine the credibility of this administration's victory in 2016 and, and their legitimacy going forward and so on, which you may recall was premised on the idea that, number one, the Russians didn't hack the election, and therefore, what are we sanctioning them for? And number two, remember, the president campaigned on the idea that we should fix the relationship with Russia. So if he ends up doing the exact opposite of that, you know, it's damaging to him. Both arguments get made. Um, uh, Congress disagrees with both of them. And so the two are at loggerheads right now. And the result is we don't really have, it's, it's, it's weirdly not as much a partisan issue as it is an administration versus Congress issue. We don't have a Russia policy right now. Our Russia policy is, I think, kind of just hope they roll over eventually and change their minds and admit that they're wrong in Syria and Ukraine and everywhere else, you know, and talk about pressuring them, but don't actually pressure them. That seems to be what's happening. Declining power? Is that? Declining. Yeah, yeah. Could Putin reverse Well, I mean, so it depends on what measure. So objectively, uh, Russia's demographics are bad, but they're actually not as bad as they were 10 years ago. Um, one little known factoid about Russia is that for most of the last 20 years, Russia has been the second. Uh, largest destination for migrants in the world. It's just that those migrants come from Central Asia and the Caucasus, places that most Americans don't pay attention to. Uh, the, the United States, of course, is the first destination for migrants or immigrants. Um, so, you know, demography is not hugely on Russia's side, but it's also not, it's not the catastrophe that it could have been. Um, Russia's economy is in bad shape mostly because of low commodity prices, um, relatively low, and because of lack of structural reform. That the Russians just haven't done the hard things that you know, some post-communist systems did and, and reaped the benefits from. But that said, again, nowhere near as bad as it was in the 1990s, and nowhere near as bad as it could be. Um, Russia has a surprisingly competent set of technocratic economic managers who are pretty much completely apolitical. They don't care if they're working for Putin or Stalin or Gorbachev. You know, they're doing their job. And the, and the valuable thing for them about the Putin system is although he taxes the economy a lot, in other words, you know, siphoning off money to his buddies who then, you know, squirrel it away in their uh, Swiss accounts or whatever, um, he doesn't really mess that much with economic fundamentals. And that's why, amazingly, Russia has actually climbed the World Bank ease of doing business rankings. It's actually gotten easier to start a business, run a business, etc. although there are lots and lots of problems with that. Um, so the last category is, of course, you know, military and political. And sure, Russia might be declining, but Russia was starting out up here. So they can decline for a very long time and still be one of the world's major military and political actors. For instance, at what point is someone, you know, India is campaigning to be a new permanent member of the Security Council. 
Well, at what point is someone going to get the bright idea of, well, India should join and Russia should be removed? You know, Russia is going to enjoy the legacy of its historical position as a major military power and a geopolitical superpower, I think, for a very long time. So yes, it's declining, but yes, sir. No. Uh, implicit. I, I agree with your <coughs> depiction of. Uh, Russians loving Russia and being different. And uh, I also want to pick on you as a person in the middle of the elite in DC. Because <coughs> Americans are Americans, and it's going to be very difficult to change them. And we live in a world of diversity, or whether it's China, Russia, or whatever, that are successful. Not, it's no longer this juxtaposition of the Cold War, where winning and losing were vague. So we live in a world of diversity, of which Russia is, I think you rightly point out, a very critical part. How are you going to change the debate in Washington, D.C.? Uh, going out and changing the views of the American people, as you rightly point out in answer to the first question, is a tough one, tough one. Uh, and you imply that the tangle between Congress and the White House and between the parties is another impediment. Uh, how do we, I would even include, I would name you specifically, but the foreign policy establishment of the United States. Uh, I have seen very little of acknowledgement that we live in this diverse world. And if Hillary Clinton had been elected president, I think the, the problems that you have defined in this talk would be probably pretty much the same, except, you know, you wouldn't have Trump performing. But, uh, so, what are you going to do about this? I mean, you're the head of the Kennedy Institute, oh. you know, and uh, right. you don't do, do something. You right. don't know what to do, I don't know who does. Right. Well, I don't know what to do. Um, and I don't know who does. Uh, you know, what, what a very American question. Right, um, and I and I am American. I am American through and through, and I totally agree with the question. And I have tried, and uh, and I can tell you, no number of op-eds, uh, no number of Hill briefings, no number of second-track dialogues, uh, no number of lectures, is going to change the zeitgeist uh, in Washington or the national mood. Um, but I tend to believe, you know, human beings are, you know. We're organic creatures. Our bodies don't change very much. Our minds don't change very much. It's just our technology and our clothes. And, you know, historically, we tend to do what we have to do when our backs are against the wall. You know, we can be more or less effective at it, but we, we just do it because we have to. We are pretty bad at doing what we ought to do in order to get to a better place prospectively in the future. And I think, again, the problem that we face in this country is a good problem to have, but it's still a really big problem. And that is that even if we all agree with everything that you said, there's still going to be food on the table for every single person in this room tomorrow morning. And our kids are safe. Nobody is going to invade and occupy our homes. We have health care. It may not be perfect. But if we want it, we can get it. Okay? As long as those things are basically true about our lives, then I think the motivation to solve the kinds of insoluble, endemic problems that you described in Washington just isn't there. So even if people come along with really good ideas about how to get from where we are today to where we ought to be, or get back to where we should be, however you want to define it, 
It's not going to happen until we have to do it. And who's going to be the leader of the world while we're waiting? <laughs> yeah. Uh, isn't, uh, I think Ian Bremmer wrote a book called G Zero yeah. about yeah. a leaderless yes, I world. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't see, I see precious little leadership in the world. And the leadership that I do see is terrifying. I do not want to live in a world led by Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping. But you know, they will clearly be leaders six years from now, whoever is the leader in Washington. How about we pass the burden to our students? And yes. Take a question from a student. Yeah. Scott, feel free to moderate here. There's one. That is a fabulous question. Uh, I, I read that question as a sort of uh, veiled reference to the upcoming uh, election, the, the presidential election, right, where Putin is clearly going to be you know, crowned president again for a fourth term. And then what happens afterwards, right, the big succession dilemma? Does he begin to bring about some slightly greater degree of pluralism in the system? The answer is, of course, yes, subject to constraints, right? There are many good reasons. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't mean that he necessarily will, but there are many good reasons why he might do that. But the constraint is, at the end of the day, um, he can't do it in any genuine way that carries any degree of unpredictable risk for himself, personally, his power, and his control over the system. And as long as that's true, it means that he's defining any pluralism that exists within the boundaries of the power vertical. And so it's, it's, it's like saying, well, you know, we're going to maintain this same basic structure, but inside it, we're going to paint the walls all different colors, right? So it's a simulation of pluralism. And they have that, right? They have all these political parties, and they have, like, young technocrats wearing hipster glasses and, like, you know, but it's a simulation of pluralism in the system. They have NGOs. They have different churches, right? They have all this stuff, but everybody knows at the end of the day, if you want something to happen, you go up to the top, right? And if something happens, only the guy at the top is responsible. That's another feature of this Russian system, is that people all up the line shirk responsibility. And that's part of why stuff doesn't work when it should work. So I don't see him changing that, because if he changes that, he accepts a degree of vulnerability that the whole system is built to reject. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes? Um, speaking of uh, terrible, terrifying leaders, like you said, so as of late, Russia's supplying North Korea with internet and apparently violating sanctions to support that state, supporting Iran and Syria as well. My question for you is, what does all that mean? Is it just about getting influence, or is it forcing us to expend time and attention and resources to fix these problems? That's a great question. Uh, why does Russia do all of these things that apparently go against the rules-based international order and all these different theaters? Uh, and the answer is Anna Karenina, which is, you know, all happy families are alike and all unhappy families are unhappy in different ways. 
So what Russia does in each of these global, you know, difficult hotspots, it does often for different reasons in different places. There's no unified field theory of why Russia is, you know, doing what it does in Syria, but then showing up in the Mexican election, right? I mean, what, what are they up to? The answer is, you know, in some cases, they have really long-standing relationships, uh, like with the Assad regime in Syria, right? It goes back to his father, and they've been weapons suppliers for a very long time. In other cases, they have massive historical geopolitical complexes, both in the literal physical sense and in the sort of abstract sense, like with Ukraine or with Georgia. How can we lose Ukraine to the West? How can we allow this to happen? Or as Putin put it, you know, uh, I will happily invite NATO sailors to be my guests in Sevastopol Harbor in Crimea, but never will we come as the guests of NATO to our own Sevastopol, right? Like, you know, th there are reasons of history, there are reasons of geopolitics, there are reasons of sheer opportunism, but I don't, I don't buy that there's a single explanation. Some people will tell you Russia's, Russia's on the march, right? Russia's aggressive everywhere around the world. You know, I think that's just another way of describing Russia's paying attention. It's, it's, it sees opportunities and it strikes, right? As opposed to there are times when the United States is just not paying attention, right? Bad stuff's happening all around that really affects our interests and we're not doing anything about it. But then there are times when we are, we're very active and people could say we're on the march. Um, they use different tools in different contexts because they're not stupid. You know, some things work better. Like for instance, a military tool is not gonna work very well against the United States of America. But information warfare, yeah, it works really well. You know, I, so the, the answer is, uh, you know, there's no, there's no single answer. But uh, you, you gotta, you know, that's why they pay people like me to sit and study the details. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Well, so number one, I, I think we're doing, as far as the Russia account, I think we're doing everything we can do to try to stop the war in eastern Ukraine. Uh, you know, I think we're, we're basically just putting Crimea on the back burner for now in recognition that one is urgent and one is, you know, they're both important, but one is urgent and one is sort of less urgent. Um, and that's basically, you know, negotiating with the Russians, but also maintaining some credible amount of threat, like, you know, we're going to send weapons or we're going to uh, uh, impose more sanctions. The bigger concern I have is not actually on the, on the war front. The war is having an extremely deleterious effect on Ukrainian society. It's really messing up U Ukrainian kind of collective... Uh, psyche and, and politics. I mean, when you have a president who struts around, who's an oligarch, and you know, corrupt as the day is long, and who struts around in a military uniform that he never earned as commander in chief, and excuses all types of bad behavior, well, we're at war, we're at war, you know, that's a huge problem for the country. And, and, and Ukrainians get that, and they're very angry about it. But who is going to lead them if not their president? And, and not surprisingly, his popularity is in single digits now. So the, the account, the side of the portfolio I'm really worried about now is the Ukrainian reform sort of delivering on the promise of the revolution because uh, 
that that doesn't I don't have a crystal ball but that doesn't seem to be happening um, not at a reasonable pace that's sort of on a pol politically realistic timetable and the sorts of things that are happening in many cases are really scary and troubling um, like the most popular forces in politics are actually the people promising the radical solutions lock them all up right you know the, the veterans coming back from the front who have like a total Manichaean you know good versus evil warfare kind of mindset it's terrifying is it all at the end of the day because Russia invaded the country? Yeah, mostly it is, and that sucks. But that's also the hand that Ukraine has been dealt. What we can do, obviously, is you know, tough love on the reform agenda, which is really hold their feet to the fire to make this real. But we can't substitute ourselves for the Ukrainian people. At the end of the day, they're going to have to want it. They're going to have to deliver on it. They're going to have to make sacrifices for it. We can ensure that the Europeans continue to give them positive incentives. Um, but. You know, at some point, we may just have to accept, call a spade a spade, right? And say, like, the gas has kind of run out of this post-Maidan, post-revolutionary moment. Now we have to focus on just containing the damage and at least maintaining, you know, some degree of stability. I don't know if we're there quite yet. I think there's still some, some momentum, but it's dwindling. Yes? Uh, would you comment on your opinion on the dysfunctionality of the State Department early with a poor... Um, employment level and inability, maybe, maybe not, to put together complex projects uh, proactive for solving problems? Wow. Uh, that was almost like a, like a perfect Washington question. Uh, <laughs> you know, you got proactive and complex in there. Uh, no, I mean, there's, there's no good answer to that. It, it is exactly what it is, which is there are some really good people in the State Department doing really good work. Like, really. Um, and there are some people doing even better work than they were doing before because they have to, because they have no choice, because the, the guy or the gal who used to do that work for them is now gone. Um, and, and so I think we still have an incredibly capable diplomatic corps and, and State Department uh, career um, officials. What we have less of, I would say, is connectivity between uh, the political appointee class and the career professionals across all of the government. And that's a result of, I mean, you guys have been paying attention. The last year is a total wreck. In I mean, we have fewer confirmed political appointments in a government that's supposed to be run by political appointees. That's how our Constitution works, um, like it or not. And, uh, you know, when you don't have that, then it leaves the White House pretty isolated from kind of the career, the, what, what my former boss used to call the permanent government. Um, and, 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 it, and it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And that's where you get these disjointed policy processes. So, you know, the permanent government will work and churn and churn and churn and will produce, you know, a policy paper and it will go up to the White House and then nothing will happen, right? Or there will be an obligation to do something like reporting to Congress on sanctions and they'll churn and churn and churn and they'll produce the report and it'll be very detailed and elaborate and so on. And they maybe are doing it shorthanded and short of resources, but they still do it. And then someone will call in at the last minute and say, no, 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 we're not doing that. Here's a post-it note. This is what we're doing, right? And, and it's that lack of connectivity, I think, that's the biggest problem in the process right now. Yes? In the back there? Yeah, so early on, you touched on the worldview of the Russian, the current ruling of the Russian economy defines those in 1957. I'm curious, with regards to the next generation leadership, call it those in the 30s or 40s, um, what degree is there more that is a great question. It's, it's different. Um, I won't, 
I, I won't give you a clean, perfect analogy like they are the new, what used to be called in the Soviet system, the golden youth, right? They're the new you know, children of privilege. There's some of that. But basically, if you talk about people like under 40, um, they have mostly uh, come up in a Russia that has been on the rise from, you know, come up in terms of their political awareness and their professional development. Um, it's been Putin's Russia. It's been a Russia which is becoming more powerful again and more assertive. Uh, and relatively stable in certain ways. Um, what has not changed for them is that they understand exactly where their bread is buttered. These are not people who are, you know, prepared to jump off into the abyss and embrace radical reform, revolution, westernization, because where they have gotten to in their own lives, in their own personal experience, has been because they played the game in the Putin system, which in that sense is a system just as the communist nomenclatura system was. And so they have learned their lessons. And even though they look more fashionable and they spend more time in you know, chic Western destinations and they maybe you know, know the basic principles of microeconomics, they are still products of that system. And that's a reality. And so I was asked earlier today actually at lunch you know, well, what happens when the new generation comes into political power? My answer is, then there'll be a new generation of political power, right? But I can, I mean, I'm already looking at a Russian government which is half peopled by under 40s. I mean, you've got deputy ministers now who are 38, right? These people are playing ball with the system. So I absolutely can envision a day 30 years from now when everyone up to and including Putin is gone and you have the exact same system. Yes. Yeah. Uh, how do you evaluate the triangular relation between U.S., China, and Russia? Do we have a, like a response or strategy to, you know, response to the Belt and Road or whatever right. efforts that China or Russia are trying to make to reshape the Eurasia economy? No, we have we have sort of two responses. Uh, one is panic. Oh my God! You know, look, we're pushing Russia into China's arms or China into Russia's arms or whatever. And the other one is, oh, don't worry about this. They're both. They've been at each other's throats for hundreds of years. They've fought multiple wars with each other. And they're both racist as the day is long, so they'll never, they'll never get along. Okay, obviously, both of those are, are wrong, right? There is something to the Russia-China relationship. It's real. Whether you call it Belt and Road or something else, Eurasian economic integration through infrastructure is a real thing, okay? And it was real before Xi Jinping came along. It was happening. Uh, so we got to pay attention to it. On the other hand, it is also true that neither the Russians nor the Chinese is prepared, as I said during my lecture, to sort of accept the other's suzerainty or imperial embrace, right? The Russians are not interested in becoming a sort of junior partner of China, not even just in East Asia and Siberia. Um, that's a very hard position to maintain when you are 10 million people you know, north of the border and they are a billion people south of the border. But for now, Russia's military power makes that possible, right? There is an effective deterrence relationship there. And Russia tends to spread its resources far and wide, right? So they sell military hardware to Vietnam as a way of, of you know, countering China from the other end. They develop close relations with Japan. You know, Abe and Putin are good buddies now. So, you know, it's pretty clear that both of them are hedging against the others, right? China is increasingly moving into post-Soviet Central Asia. Um, so far, they're not threatening the political and military dominance of Russia in the region, 
but boy, are they developing an economic codependency with Central Asia in the region. Someone said, I was, I was recently, I recently did a trip from China, Central Asia, Russia, and someone in Central Asia said, you know, you shouldn't forget that the biggest Central Asian country is Western China. And that's true. China is increasingly present in regions that Russia has historically considered its own. So yes, there is something coming there. Yes, it's real. But on the other hand, we shouldn't, you know, get ourselves into a panic that Russia and China are about to go, you know, march down the aisle and, and sort of leave us uh, in, in catastrophe. Okay. Thanks very much. Well, it's getting late, so this is probably a good time there. Uh, thank you for staying so long. And uh, it's even later for him because yeah. he's at East Coast time. So um, this has been very illuminating. Please join me in thanking uh, Matt McCann.